Hello, everybody, and welcome back to DDKPod, the podcast where three guys who founded an IT company talk about IT industry news and topics that interest us. My name is Julian Day, and with me, as always, are my two co-hosts, Jatinder Candola and Will Dalton. How are you guys? I'm good, thank you. Yep, good, thanks. Good, good. So we'll start with the news, as we always do. And uh, unfortunately, we've got to start with a sad story this week. So apologies, everybody, but I think it's worth covering. So this is the story that, unfortunately, Chadwick Boseman, who was the star of Black Panther, the movie in the Marvel MCU, and also Infinity War and Avengers Endgame, three of the biggest movies ever made, it's important to remember that, has unfortunately passed away at the age of 43 of colon cancer. So if it's okay with you guys, I'm just going to read the statement that his family put out because it's quite powerful. So they said, it is with immeasurable grief that we confirm the passing of Chadwick Boseman. Chadwick was diagnosed with stage three colon cancer in 2016 and battled with it these last four years as it progressed to stage four. A true fighter, Chadwick persevered through it all and brought you many of the films you have come to love so much, from Marshall to The Five Bloods, August Wilson's, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and several more. All were filmed during and between countless surgeries and chemotherapy. It was the honour of his career to bring King T'Challa to life in Black Panther. He died in his home with his wife and family by his side. The family thanks you for your love and prayers and asks that you continue to respect their privacy during this difficult time. And what's extraordinary about this statement is that it reveals he was diagnosed in 2016. I actually went back and looked up when Black Panther came out. It was in 2018. And bearing in mind, he's then been in two Avengers movies since then. So this guy's been doing the grueling, exhausting process of bulking himself up because he has a long, extended shirtless fight scene in Black Panther. When he filmed that, he must have been six months to a year into his cancer treatment. So he went through that body transformation with cancer. I mean, I go to the gym (laughs) and I don't look anything like him and I haven't got cancer, I hope. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's just remarkable, you know, his fortitude. He he then filmed these these massive movies all the time going through all this cancer stuff and keeping it quiet. And also, this was reflected actually on a podcast called The Weekly Planet that I listened to with James Clement and uh, Nick Mason. And they talked about it really eloquently, but they said... The thing is, you're always in character when you're a Marvel superhero. You're always kind of in character. So if someone comes up to you on the street, you can't just tell them to go do one because you're kind of an ambassador for the brand. So this guy was going to hospitals where young children, many of them from ethnic backgrounds and so on, who were really inspired by his example, were dying of cancer themselves while he was dying of cancer. And he was going there and giving them messages of hope and inspiration when he knew or he must have known that he was dying, which is a remarkable thing to do, really. So I just thought it was worth us saying that I think everybody at DDK sends their condolences to his family. And uh, yeah, what a remarkable life, what a remarkable career. I just wanted to pay tribute to him, really. I think he was an amazing guy uh, for doing what he did. Yeah, I And to do all that with cancer for four years, you imagine how exhausting those press junkets are, flying all over the world, going to all those premieres, signing all those autographs, doing all those press interviews. You imagine doing that and knowing you've got terminal cancer. Yeah between surgeries and chemo, you know? I wonder if him being in character helped him somewhat. Do you know what I mean? It sort of separated him from from himself, if you like, and the disease that he had. Guys that I've listened to and videos I've seen on the subject, they've pointed out the odd meme that was floating around showing him doing the Black Panther crossed arm salute and poking fun at how tired he was of having to do it and stuff like that. And then you you realise the guy was dying. So Mm. that's probably why he was you know, feeling tired and exhausted and everything else. It just casts a new light on so many things that he did in his career. I haven't actually watched The Five Bloods, which I think is on streaming services, but one of my friends the other day pinged me and said, I wonder if the reason he wasn't in it all that much was a conscious choice by the writers or because he wasn't actually capable by the time he filmed it. But again, what an extraordinary life and what a legacy he leaves behind. 
I don't think that Black Panther for me deserved a Best Picture nomination, but I do think it it deserved most influential picture or something like that. I mean, mm. the the fact that it was what it was, the guy playing an African character, not even an African-American character, but a properly African character, admittedly from a fictional nation. It gave a lot of people hope, gave a lot of people representation that they wouldn't otherwise have had. Anyway, just wanted to do a little tribute. Sorry to start on a sad note, but I think it's worth us saying, what a life. Jatinder, did you want to go next with your news story? My story is about further political rows for Facebook. So Facebook in India, they, they are now kind of being asked to present themselves to a parliamentary panel over some accusations that they were too easy on some political posts that were made by the current ruling party in India, which is BJP. And the, the reason why they're being highlighted is because the posts were Hindu nationalists, so they were hateful uh, against Muslims more than anybody else. So it's a big news story it's more controversy uh, unfortunately uh, but then at the same time it then challenges again where facebook and companies like facebook need to put a stance towards whether they are going to be involved in moderating content for political type of stories so at the moment india has the largest following of facebook users with 300 million so it's a big market for them however facebook are also trying to invest in indian platforms so India has a, a model where international companies have to work via their own companies that are Indian based. So there's a company called Geo Platforms that Facebook have bought a stake in. A stake is $5.7 billion for telecommunications. So it's an, a market that they really need and they've invested in financially and they need to keep them happy. But Mark Zuckerberg has said that he is still reluctant to moderate content by politicians. So there isn't a clear kind of way forward in terms of what's going to happen, but it has shaken the firm. Wow. Yeah. Be interested to see how that progresses. Um, Will, do you want to cover your news story? Yep, sure. So I tweeted about this the other day, actually. Uh, upset. Your holiday flights have been cancelled. Fear not. Plain food is available for delivery. Yeah, you heard that right. Yeah, nice plug. <laughs> nice plug for the Twitter account, <laughs> at DDK Limited. See, when I go on planes, the food that I eat could be pretty bad most of the times. Uh, that's unless I'm flying first class, and that's happened once in my life, and I, and I was pissed, so I didn't really appreciate it. <laughs> However. Just generally angry or really just drunk? <laughs> no, just, just pissed. Got pissed <laughs> off. <laughs> <laughs> However, despite that, I don't think I've ever thought on a plane, oh, if only that meal cooked in that way was available for delivery when I got home. <laughs> and, then went on, and then went on to Deliveroo for, you know, the British Airways app to, to order mm. some food. Or maybe you never realised that that's what you wanted. Well, exactly. <laughs> Uh, but now you can, although not British Airways, I have to say. In-flight meals from Indonesia carrier Garuda, Packaged in the same manner as you would have it on a flight. AirAsia doing it. Thai Airways are doing it. Actually, the Asian food sounds like, and it may be better than its Western counterparts. So I'm, I may be doing it a massive disservice. It's The Economist, August 29th edition. Grounded beef. Asian airlines are selling in-flight meals directly to the public. About a two-minute read. Oh, I didn't know that. The Economist did puns. <laughs> I thought that's quite good. I thought they were above all of that. Oh, they've gone down in my estimation. That's not a bad pun, but still, come on, Economist. Surely you're better than that. So from my experience, Asian airline food is just as bad as Western airline food. Oh, okay. That's a shame because Asian food is usually better than like fish and chips or whatever. So, uh, yeah, but 
Anywho, let's move on to this week's main topic then. So, Will, you're going to be taking us through the initial intro to this. So this is Hello World, How to Be Human in the Age of the Machine by Hannah Fry. Yeah, that's it. So I finished reading that book, Hello World, How to Be Human in the Age of the Machine. Hannah Fry, as you say, Hannah Fry is a 36-year-old that's done so much already. TV, TED Talks, writing books, bit of maths, bit of adding in her spare time. She's one of the most accomplished mathematicians in the country, surely. 36, high achiever or what? I think in my 30s, I was just coming to terms with being a normal human being, but there you go. And then since then, it's all gone wrong, yeah? (laughs) (laughs) Interesting overview of algorithms, however, rule-based and machine learning, and the data associated with that from the beginnings to now, how it impacts across transport, justice, crime, art, and in particular, the impact and conflict with humans in this in this area. And that's the interesting take on it. I think following from last week, uh, she needs to add education <laughs> into that mix. Covers interest in human behaviours towards them, towards algorithms, and that they're treated with some reverence and source of authority. But if they go wrong or give the wrong answer, the outcry is much worse than if human gave the wrong answer, even if the impact was much bigger from the human's point of view. And it's this continual power struggle. And she poses the question in the balance of power between human and algorithm, who or what should have the final say? Because only humans will feel the weight of responsibility for their decisions, but actually humans having the final say, in fact, only introduces inaccuracy. But we live in a world full of inaccuracy, And this is deemed fair. So she starts with a couple of interesting examples, uh, human versus machine, with very different outcomes. And just quickly touch on them. Russian military officer in charge of monitoring the nuclear early warning system, protecting Soviet airspace. So a minor role. What does he do when the machine informs him that his country is under attack by a number of American nukes? (laughs) I won't tell you the answer. Smiler roller coaster at Alton Towers. Remember this back in, I don't know when, 2006 maybe. What do the engineers do when the machine was saying that there was a problem and the roller coaster was, was on the track blocking it? Again, won't give the answer, but... Very different outcomes to both of those examples. So as I say, she touches on algorithmic and data impact, both positive and negative across justice, medicine, transport, crime and art. Good book. So I guess this is related to the topic that we had discussion on last week, which was all about the use of an algorithm to determine the A-level results for for people, which was then reversed in favour of human predicted grades, which were Mm. uh, massively higher than they should have been, but were the least worst option in the circumstances. So what, with the lens of this book, would Anna Fry think about that, do you think, Will, or what are the key points that relate to that story from from the book? Well, I think in summary around her book, she was was talking about the lack of governance legislation and and the increasing requirement for transparency. You can't launch an algorithm on people, which then gives answers they don't want to hear as there'll be more of a backlash backlash than if a human did it i think that's one of the primary things that went wrong last week algorithms have got to be transparent so that we can shine a light on them i mean there was an example that she raised a bug ridden spreadsheet that was used to assist judges in their sentence decisions under the tagline of ai but actually all it was was a bug-ridden spreadsheet with formulae in it. It took years of legislation for that spreadsheet to become transparent so people could actually look at how it was making those decisions and the person and the people impacted by that. Over all those years, 
their sentences were were, were subsequently reviewed. So yeah, governance, legislation, transparency. That was that was a summary on the book. It's so apt to what happened last week. I think the government needs to read that particular book. Is there any reason why there is not much governance? Is it in the kind of spirit of research and innovation that the, they they don't put too much protocol or too many governance measures in to to kind of get to a certain point? I think so. I mean, it's all a bit of a wild west at the moment, isn't it? Under the under the guise of innovation, yeah, legislation, governance. They sound all blockers to to innovation, don't they? And and potentially it's the next step as as innovation reaches a, a level of maturity. Now's the time, though. Once you start launching algorithms to make massive life-changing decisions, I mean, come on, you need a bit more than just a bit of a Wild West algorithm that no one has a clue about how it works. She touches on data, which is also an interest. There's a whole section on data and the current Wild West of data collection. Palantir Technologies, Peter Thiel from PayPal firm. Have a look at that. (laughs) Have a look at that company. As you know, vast amounts of information are being collected, especially by this this company, sold on to data brokers. We're just waking up to the impact and contentions of what that actually means. And there's no regulation to prevent them from doing that? Or is it it that it's an ethical issue? So is what Palantir are doing, what's her point around that? Is it that it should be more heavily regulated or that it's unethical or... It goes back to the point that she was making, I mean, around governance, legislation, transparency. It's not illegal. You can do it. In fact, that data is most of the time freely given by the people that are using the particular software. It's just they use that data. There's a whole hidden industry around data being sold to other companies. In fact, the data profile of your digital shadow exists for each one of us with an ID number, an ID number that we don't even know about and contains traces of everything you've ever done. From an online point of view, and some of it, it goes into things like your real sexual orientation and what the projected, your projected sexual orientation is based off data. It's making predictions in terms of your behavior, in terms of your personality and some real sensitive stuff, rape victim information, whether you've had an abortion, deeply, deeply personal stuff that is freely traded without your knowledge. It's strange that there's no real governance or anything happening around that simply because of so many high profile stories around where data has been used or manipulation of data to make certain decisions. So the Cambridge Analytica stories, and then also data as a commodity is meant to be worth more than oil. So it seems like maybe it's worth more than oil because it's so accessible and it can be used to do these things. And that that might be a reason why there's not much governance around it for now. I don't know. Well, I think it's interesting because I, I saw a conference a while ago by Professor Dame Wendy Hall, who was the head of the School of Electronics and Computer Science at Southampton University when I went there and another lady whose name I can't remember and Hannah Fry herself she was on there and they talked about exactly this point so they were talking about how there isn't any regulation but also I think they touched on it was a little while ago I I attended this so apologies if I'm misremembering it but I think they touched on ethics as well and the fact that you would have a uh, an ethical board if you wanted to do a medical study or something along those lines but you don't have any equivalent body for an algorithm you can more or less do whatever you like and like you said some of those bits of data that you're mentioning is it really even ethical to process those even if it is just with a machine that doesn't have an emotional response to those things so they were very much touching on that. She also touched on something that was quite interesting, which was the inherent assumptions around the accuracy of algorithms and how extraordinary they are. There was a story that popped up in the press a while ago, I think it was in The Guardian, where they said that engineers had created an algorithm that could determine from your data footprint what your sexual orientation was. 
And that in about 80% of cases, this algorithm, just by sifting data and crawling through it and, and doing lots of complex stuff, could decide whether you were really straight, gay, whatever, wherever you fall on the spectrum. And Hannah Fry pointed out that she could probably come up with a massively more accurate algorithm than that. And she outlined her process for doing so, which was to look at the census data. Because this algorithm was identifying people correctly in 80% of cases, but in 96% of cases in the census data, people were identifying themselves as, as straight or something along those lines. I can't remember the exact stats, so I do apologize if I've got them wrong. But basically, the inference was that people are amazed and, and astounded by the magic of an algorithm, a computer-driven algorithm that can generate an 80% accurate stat. But in many ways, sometimes applying it can be the wrong thing to do, or there might be a much more obvious answer, but people don't even consider that because they'd rather believe in the magic of machines. And mm. maybe there's an element of that in last week's story as well. A computer is the best way to do this, so we'll go with that. But then nobody really checks whether or not they've fed it a biased data set or an incorrect data set, or whether they've missed some outlying cases which are going to really heavily penalize certain sections. Or even just making it visible so people can make it informed. Even just the act of making something transparent alleviates a lot of people's bias towards the algorithm if they get the answer they don't like or don't want to hear or see. And that's one thing I suppose you can say in praise of Ofqual last week is that they did, they were fully transparent about what the algorithm was doing. They were 317 pages, I think it was, of fully transparent about what, it, what had happened. Mm. <laughs> so they released this big report. Bored already. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, re they released this report on that Jenny Tennyson article that I linked that breaks that down in a much more succinct way. But uh, they, they were transparent, but they were transparent after the fact. That's the problem. Mm. Mm. And so they've already made the mistake. The horse has bolted at that point. If they'd been transparent beforehand, people would have picked up these issues. But that would have been humans picking up the issue with the machine. Whereas they trusted the machine too much and didn't put that human balancing factor in place. And Wendy Hall and, and Hannah Fry and her colleagues were saying that there will probably always be a place in some ways for humans to get involved. I think bias is also an interesting topic. So there's some good examples. Does she cover any of the examples in the book around bias data sets or racist data sets and things like that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it touches it in both justice and crime um, in terms of bias in the massive data set, inherent in the massive data sets, because basically the data, in order to get massive data, in order to train those machine learning algorithms, you've got to go back in history. <laughs> you know, you go back in history, there's huge amounts of prejudice. It gets worse the further you go back. You know, it's getting better. It's by no means perfect, but it's getting better, which means that training your algorithm is going to be trained on prejudiced data. Yeah, which then prejudices the algorithm unintentionally. Yeah. I mean, she does touch on actually that the algorithms are being tweaked, like a kind of positive discrimination for, for algorithms in order to try and get past that bias, to override that bias or to add an, its own positive bias, if you like, to counteract <laughs> the prejudice. We're, we're making the the algorithm a dark reflection of ourselves in many ways. <laughs> wow. So yeah. having to put unconscious bias or or, or uh, whatever it's called when you, like I've forgotten the word, but positive discrimination, that's what I was looking for. So having to actually bake that into an algorithm just to, to, to counter the inherent bias, that's pretty horrible if, <laughs> if that's where we're at. I think another thing that interests me on this topic is the people's reaction to it. So it's a bit like the nuclear energy thing in some ways where... Uh, if a Tesla crashes in 
I don't know, God knows where, or, or an automated, a, a driverless car crashes somewhere, then it becomes headline news. Not just Tesla, yeah? No, no, no. I mean, it could be it could be anyone, but they're the ones who've got the autopilot system, which supposedly is more advanced and more algorithmic than any other cruise control system. And people keep, mm. there's a story that Emma uh, linked me the other day where this guy smashed into two police cars in America. Thankfully, nobody was hurt or badly hurt, but he smashed into two stationary police cars because he was watching TV while his Tesla was on autopilot. <laughs> right. Okay. Because he blamed, he blamed the algorithm. Yeah. No, sorry, officer. It's the algorithm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th- I think he blamed Tesla for, for al- advertising it as, being able to do this thing, which it obviously can't. So who takes the points on that license? Is it the car that takes the points in that? I think the car's dead, so presumably <laughs> not the car. But it's just, it's interesting that, that if a driverless car runs over a person, which they have already, hmm. it, you know, everyone loses their minds. They just go crazy. Uh, and they're like, oh my God, these things are so dangerous, blah, blah, blah. But even in their infancy as they are at the moment, they're way safer than humans. They don't get drunk. They don't make stupid errors of judgment. They're not putting their eye makeup on while they're driving down the road. They're not on their phone. There are a thousand and one reasons why a human might have a dreadful accident, whereas a driverless car is much more likely to be consistent in terms of its performance performance at least. But people view them with a huge amount of suspicion and derision because it's a computer that's in charge. It's an algorithm that's driving the car, not a person. And as you say, in the rare cases where that breaks down and there is a need for common sense, but common sense is not applied, people jump on that. It'd be interesting to understand at which point we as society will become comfortable with that level of control being with the machine when it comes to being in a car or controlling nuclear weapons and stuff like that. So um, it's a strange, it's difficult to predict, I guess, what, what product it will be that will get us to that level of comfort and what needs to happen for that kind of tipping point almost. You'd think that it'd be cars because it's the thing that impacts people at mass, I guess, right now. But then will that be the point at which things change in terms of governance as well? Well, you think it's cars, but I mean, she touches on many examples in, in, in the categories I talked about, in justice, medicine, crime and art, as well as transport. I think uh, Tesla have done a clever marketing ploy in terms of they've brought their automation and their car to the public's attention. Uh, and it's also interesting to talk about the definition of algorithm, but it doesn't mean these algorithms don't exist in all those other fields as well to the same kind of level as they exist in transport. Okay, well, I think we'll uh, wrap up the main topic for this week there, but it'll be fascinating to revisit this topic in a few years' time, potentially, and look at how attitudes have changed. Maybe she'll write a follow-up book and we'll all review that. Who knows? Anyway, let's move on to the recommendation section of the show, if that's okay. Jatinda, did you want to go first again this week? I hope it's not a bike lock this time. (laughs) (laughs) Bought it, (laughs) Jatinda. So Will really enjoyed that one. He's got three. Yeah, loved it, loved it. Fantastic. So the thing I'd like to recommend is uh, during lockdown, like most people, I did try to get rid of a lot of excess stuff around the house, stuff that we've been hoarding for like 30 years. And the, the, the mechanism I found that was most effective to do that is using Facebook Marketplace. So it's classified ads in Facebook pretty much, but you can target it to certain groups and communities. So if you live in a certain area on a certain estate and you've got a Facebook group for that estate or in that little town where I live. So it's easy for you to kind of share what it is that you're trying to get rid of, even if you're giving it away for free or just advertising some old furniture that you want to sell on for a few quid. So yeah, I highly recommend it. It's it's been around for years. Most people probably already know about it, but I found it really good. So Facebook Marketplace. Cool. 
different to eBay? Uh, yeah, uh, eBay, I guess you do the transaction online. So that's um, you actually do bidding and, and, and actually buy the product via eBay. Whereas this is literally a ele- electronic classified ad, but you can target people in a vicinity, really. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, and it, it will ping people's emails. So anybody that's got a Facebook account that's in those groups, they'll get a message saying that Jatinda wants to sell a cupboard mm. uh, for five pounds. So yeah. <laughs> cupboard, five quid. <laughs> JK, I'll have one. I'll have one to put my bike lock in. <laughs> <laughs> to put your pile of bike locks in. But yeah. Okay, cool. Well, Will, do you want to go ahead with your recommendation? Okay, so I've been following a couple of characters, actually. Jim Ferris is a blogger and podcaster who interviewed a guy called Eric Teller. He's the CEO of Google X, or is someone somewhat arrogantly titled, it's now just called X, Tim, Tim.blog slash Friday. You subscribe to him via email. Don't really know what that's all about. He's our podcast competition. He's similar to us in that he has hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of subscribers. Uh, and rave reviews from New York Times, Time, Fortune, Forbes. His popularity is that he interviews characters from around the world that are huge influencers. Anyway, the recommendation is to listen to the interview with Eric Teller, chap born in England. But unfortunately for him, he had a great talent in engineering. So he had to emigrate to America to be recognized and earn loads of money because we don't do that here. (laughs) (laughs) Same age as me, 402. Some interesting snippets from the podcast. Uh, Teller gave a TED talk at, uh, at TED, interestingly enough, on the, on the importance of failure in Google X approach to pioneering new, new projects. As I said, he's CEO of Google X. Uh, I can't say X anymore. I'm going to stick with Google X. And he talks about their labs and their projects. Clues are things like Google Glass, Google Driverless Car, Google Contact Lens. Project Loon. So he's obviously taken his TED Talks of the importance of failure to the to the letter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But has so, he got as nice a beard as you? That's the main thing, Will. I mean, <laughs> he may be the same age as you and worth approximately 500 million times <laughs> more than you, but you know. Have you heard of Project Loon, by the way? No, I haven't, no. Not sure we've got time to cover it now, though. Uh, okay, next time, next time. Yeah, yeah, give us a brief on that next time because we're running, running short. So my recommendation is the Fighter Pilot podcast. So it's another podcast that I found this week, which I think is really cool. It's by a guy called Vincent Aiello, whose call sign was Jello because it rhymes with his surname. Uh, he got off lightly. They do actually do an episode on call signs and most of them are just unrepeatable. But it's really interesting. He was a, a US Navy pilot flying F-18 Hornets, landing them on aircraft carriers in storms and all that kind of stuff. So real kind of Top Gun character. He actually did a stint at Top Gun as well as an instructor, I think. Or at the very least, he went there and he went through the whole process and buzzed the tower, one assumes, and whatever else they do there. You can be my wingman anytime and all that. But it's really interesting because he gets on another fighter pilot or military aviator who he's known from his career every week and interviews them about a particular aspect of combat flying, basically. And although... It's obvious that he's making it in his garage and the audio production is is not super and various other things. None of that matters because the content is so compelling. It's just remarkable listening to these guys who used to ride around basically with a on a rocket with a seat on it, doing that for a living. And it's it's very cool. It's a very cool bit of content. I really enjoy listening to it. And uh, I'm about three or four episodes in, so I'm still sort of listening to the back catalogue, really. But yeah, definitely recommended. They're only about half an hour long, each of them. And he's a very interesting character. So that's my recommendation. Jadinda, do you want to know, uh, do you want to know, do you want to let us know where people can get in touch with the show and all that stuff? Yep. So feel free to email us if you like. 
Um, actually, Julian, I've forgotten the, the list. <laughs> okay, I'll go through it this week then. If you want to get in touch with the show, we are available at DDK Limited on Twitter. That's at DDK Limited. If you want to email us, we are on DDK Pod or one word, DDK Pod at DDK Limited.com. That's DDK Limited with Limited spelled out in full. If you want to find us on LinkedIn, we are Dalton Day Candola Limited. So I guess it just remains for me to say thanks very much to you guys for being here today. Thanks very much to all of you out there for listening. And we will catch you in the next episode. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Cheers, Al. Bye. And that's a wrap. That is a wrap.